Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily French Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, today joined by Mr. Marius Rick. Marius, how are you doing? Congrats on you, Nick. I'm pretty good, pretty good. And also Mr. Terence Corrigan. Terence, how are you? Oh, okay, first, uh, first show of the year for me. Indeed, and hopefully we can make it an exciting and insightful one. Uh, first story we're going to talk about today is uh, the, the pass rate. We're then going to talk about the resignation of a DAMP. And then we're going to finish off with a curious story about a man who had a lot of guns. So uh, let's get into the pass rate. This is a thing that comes out every every year, of course, around this time. Uh, there's lots of messages congratulating matrix and lots of focus on the uh, mental health of matrix around the country. We saw the IEBs, private schools, um, uh, matrix results come out yesterday with a sort of, I think it was a 98% pass rate. Uh, we talked about it on the show yesterday. And now the government schools have released their matric results, and indeed, they are the highest ever recorded with the current uh, National Senior Certificate certification for matric, an 82.9% matric pass rate, which is up 2.8 percentage points from last year. Um, the number of bachelor passes, which is uh, the sort of minimum, minimum requirement to be able to study at a university, uh, places like... Um, you know, UNISA, that kind of thing, uh, has increased to 40%. So the bachelor's pass, considering that many of the pass rates have been lowered in, in other things, I think is, is is a more accurate indication of uh, uh, of kind of what we might call a you know, more substantial indicator of what the actual state of the education system is. That's, that is up, though. Um, the free state, and this is what's kind of interesting, is for the second year in a row, the best performing province in terms of passes, with 89% of candidates passing. Um, KZN is in second place, Gauteng in third, and the Western Cape in fourth. Um, it's also worth noting that, uh, uh, as, as, as usual, the you know, various people have criticized these results. Uh, the DA says the real pass rate is closer to 52%, I think, is the number they had, which includes people who dropped out of um, of the education system before actually even writing their matric at all, um, which is a very significant number of people. And the IRR has often pointed out of the years that if you are a young Black South African, um, only 5% only of young Black South Africans will pass matric with over 50% in maths. I think the number is something like that, which is quite the indictment of the education system. Um, Terence, let me start with you. What do you make of these results? Um, what do you make of the fact that they are the best results that we've seen with the National Senior Certificate? Um, and what do you think is, is this, does this mean the education system is getting better? What do you think? Well, I remember it was about 10 years ago, Jonathan Janssen said something to the effect of uh, the release of the matric, the matric results is where South Africa performs annual ritual of uh, congratulating itself on mediocrity. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's kind of where we are. Um, it's positive, certainly on a um, on an individual level, that uh, a greater proportion of people pass than, than they did previously. Um, 
and maybe it's a little churlish although i think it's the 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 big picture requires one to look at all of those people who started off at you know as dots in grade in grade one and didn't, didn't didn't make it all the way through but you know i think that there's that that, that there's a few things going on here that um yeah, the education system is just not preparing people for um uh for the demands of the uh of the economy and you know call it a fulfilling life um uh, hence this uh, uh mad dash everyone what everyone wants to go to university um that just see it seems to me to just have things have things backwards you know there hasn't been enough um uh, not nearly enough emphasis put on uh, put on vocational training um we have a very low uptake of of entrepreneurship now i think that that's also one where there uh, there's also a complex matter um you know to oh, go and start your own business is a lot easier said than done um and to be fair there have been some movements within education uh, within south africa's uh, education environment to encourage that i mean that's why you have this economic and management sciences uh, subject for at sort of mid, mid school level but yeah you know as to as to whether this the signifies anything more, uh, more than itself well you know that's a that's a lot that's a long term uh, a long term thing I just say I don't I I don't see this as as a reason to 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 get excited. Maybe if we're able to replicate this every year with small small incremental improvements in the throughput and in those pass in those pass rates, uh, over time that will be something uh, will be something to celebrate. But at the at the moment, it really just seems to be you know uh, wheels spinning wheels spinning in the mud. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, even if and 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 the kind of depressing thing about this, Morris, is that even if the quality of education was good, and I think in many cases it it really isn't. I think in a lot of cases this is sort of almost a box ticking exercise. Um, the the kids who come out of school are in a in a world with very few job opportunities. I think the youth unemployment rate is what over sixty percent, something like that, um, for people just fresh out of. Uh, school, which is why Terence says, you know, everyone is trying to get to university. They just want that extra leg up to to get somewhere in the economy. Um, but the, it's it's really slim pickings. And you know, if you're a young person, uh, particularly from a less privileged background in in South Africa today, the future doesn't look particularly bright. What do you yeah, think of all this? I mean, uh, that's exactly it. There's not too much uh, to add to that. I think you're right. The and youth unemployment rate of people under 25, whatever it is, is around about 60 or 65%. I mean, it's absolutely shocking. And doesn't matter how good education is getting provided, if uh, there aren't job opportunities, then, uh, you know, it's not going to help you. But I suppose these two things are kind of related, uh, the poor education system and the poor economy. Uh, poor education system is because of problems in management and, uh, you know, management of the education system and all kinds of other complex issues. But, uh, I mean, just on the issue of... Um, the standard of matric pass uh, on when South Africa has taken part in these kind of international rating uh, uh, exercises, the TIMS, which we, they look at how well kids do at maths and science, and the PEARLS, which is about reading and literacy. I don't, I can't remember exactly what the uh, those acronyms stand for, but TIMS is for maths and science, and PEARLS is for reading. So the Africa is almost always right at the bottom, or you know, they're not, they don't uh, look at every single country in the world. They normally look at about 40 countries, normally kind of middle-income and upper-income countries. And South Africa is 
as I say, almost always uh, the last out of, say, 40 or 45 or second or third last. And it's countries that, uh, like, you know, will be, I think Kenya is normally below us. I think I've seen a couple of times some Arab countries have been below us. But overall, you know, we do really badly. And it's also just a really, uh, it's a distraction of uh, human capital. Uh, if you aren't getting um, decent education when you're young, you're you're already on the back foot uh, as you get older, and especially a thing like early childhood development. From what I've read, that is actually one of the most important uh, education stages in your life, where you go when from like the ages of four to seven, whatever the case is, before you start formal schooling. If kids haven't gone to a decent uh, kind of nursery school, you know you don't have to be taught how to read, but just all kinds of uh, things that uh, give you a very good foundation for later on in life. And a lot of kids don't get that, and they're already on the back foot when they start going to grade one and and what have you. And I see there's a comment here from somebody who's called Grasshopper. Don't think that's the real name, but it could be. It says a large portion of teachers don't even understand the subjects they were meant to teach. And I think uh, that's also right. From what I've read, often uh, South African teachers get given kind of problems that a grade, uh, grade six or standard four should be able to solve. And the teachers themselves can't do it. And that's the kind of thing, you know, if, you, if you're teaching maths to say grade sixes, you should be able to do like maths problems in your sleep. I mean, if you're teaching matric maths, you should be able to do these problems in your sleep. So that's also where the problem comes from. And it's also the influence of uh, SATU. And yeah, it's a, it's a very complex problem and a very big one for South Africa. So considering yeah. that this is a complex problem, uh, Terence, if you were to fix these problems, what would you do? Oh, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd contact Hogwarts and get them to like cast a spell on South Africa. Um, look, I, you know, I, I, this, this is, this is, this is difficult stuff. I think that one of the, one of the key difficulties I think is that most South African students are going through an education that's not taught in their home language. And I don't, I don't quite know how you, um, uh, sort of how you, how you deal with that in a, in a society like South Africa. But I do think that there are some very important, um, let's say, social and political circumstances that need to be um but what we've also had is a situation where teaching was considered like a uh, it was one of the very few sort of accessible white collar op op uh, occupations to 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 uh, uh to um uh, to black people in the um in the past so you had a lot of people who did not have the temperament uh, uh or really the interest going going into teaching because that was what was available and i think the problem is that post 1994, it's been used as a um, uh, as a sort of uh, as a sort of patronage tool. I mean, you know, state capture and education departments was a uh, was a big issue, and as far as I can ascertain, nothing has been done about that. Um, you know, I I also think that the Morris is quite correct about uh, about about early education. Students can uh, uh, can demonstrate and be heard, and this becomes the the the, core, the cause du jour. But you know whether your degree in sociology uh, is as useful, to either you know to to your own labor market mobility or to society as a whole, as opposed to taking those resources and putting them into you know into ten sort of five six year olds. That's a that is a real. That is a real question, and those five or six-year-olds don't have that sort of organisation behind them. Uh, they don't get onto they don't get onto ENCA. They don't get to make uh, make speeches quoting Franz Fanon, and become the subjects of of of, uni of university seminars. So yeah, more much more focus on those on those sort of early um, 
on those early years. And I would say, given the limitations we do have, um, we should focus on 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 things like literacy, numeracy. You know, we 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 spent you know twenty years experimenting with with uh, outcomes based education and blah 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 blah. You know, where we didn't have the 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 human resources or the physical infrastructure to you know to to make those sort of things possible um you know one can argue about whether about whether they were good ideas but they were just they were just never sort of workable i remember kata asmal saying well you know rote learning does nothing for the intellect but if rote learning can get you to read at least at least that is something you have I mean, you know we have I've I, I've been stunned sometimes with you know with, with, with what I've seen with, with with high school students. And these are not in you know deprived township schools, just the inability to put a sentence together. I don't know. Um also kids must kids must read. They must read more than they, you know, watch YouTube videos. See guys, read my stuff, don't just watch me on, on the Daily Friend show. <laughs> and you can of course do that at the dailyfriend.co.za. But um I, I really like your point. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, on, uh, I, you know, I really like your point, Terence, about the sort of overemphasis of uh, the issue on students. Um, I think something like what 10% around there percent of South Africans have a tertiary uh, level education. Something like six percent for university degrees, and the rest are, are diplomas or, or you know other higher certifications. Um, you know, if you are the kind of person who manages to get into university, it doesn't mean that your life problems are anywhere close to being solved or that you're not going to be unemployed mm. or anything like that. But it does mean that you're actually much higher in the system and in your chances of success than someone sure. who, shall we say, doesn't even frighten a trick, um, which is a mm. very significant number of people. Oh. Uh, you know, and, and more focus on the people with uh, degrees. Sorry, sorry, Karen. Yeah, and, and and as you say, Terence, you know, more focus for people at the lower ends of the education system in primary school and pre-primary school and high school. That's really what we need. We actually want to get the country uh, well educated. Yeah, I just want to say that um, unemployment for people with degrees is much lower than overall unemployment. It's still higher than it should be, but it's you know between ten and fifteen percent, which I mean, for developed countries, high, but for South Africa, that's I mean, if we had ten percent unemployment in South Africa. You know, things. Yeah. this country would be a very different place. And that's exactly why, as we covered on the show uh, on Wednesday, you know, there were 120,000 applications for University of KZN, which only has 9,000 spots, um, exactly because people see mm -hmm. the difference that a degree makes and they're desperately trying to get one. Okay, um, let's move on to our next story. Uh, and this is about the resignation of Khaled Kachalia who I believe was the DA spokesperson on public enterprises, I think I'm correct in saying. I'm not 100% sure. I need to check that. But um, he he was the spokesperson until, according to the DA, he violated an internal caucus decision by commenting on the war in Gaza. And he was fired from the shadow cabinet. He's now resigned from the party, saying that he thought that the party was going to try and prevent him from getting back as a member of parliament. He complains that uh, he attempted to mediate with the leadership um, and that this was ignored. And he says that um, uh, the, 
basically his relationship kind of broke down with the party and he feels as though the party leadership has become authoritarian um, and not particularly democratic. Um, I think this is a, a, a sad loss for the DA because he was, in my opinion, one of the more effective MPs in Parliament. Um, but Terence, it's it's kind of interesting that uh, you know you, we were talking about this in the pre-show discussion, and you point out, of course, correctly that um, South Africa has very little impact on the conflict in Gaza. Uh, and even more than that, an opposition party has even less conflict, and yet it still is such a divisive issue for so many South Africans, particularly in the DA, actually. It seems to always cause internal uh, friction in that party. Look, I think that, that uh, I think I think my, my words have been South Africa has no influence there whatsoever. This is all... Um, I think I think that for, that for the ANC and the South African state, which... I think it's difficult to tell them apart most of the time, but this kind of let this kind of lets the ANC be what it really wants to be. It's a liberation movement, valiantly struggling for the liberation of yada 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 yada. Um, a country that uh, that 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 can't keep the lights on, um, that uh, you know is just sort of bankrupted itself through its own fool its own foolishness and venality, is not a compelling um, is is not a compelling international actor. But you know. Um, all, 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 all countries take uh, take take global positions, but yeah, look, there there is nothing that the um, uh, that that the DA can do about this publicly. Um, yeah, possibly the the Western Cape government could make some sort of statement the way it's done about uh, um, about Ukraine or the city of Cape Town, but um, it's it's performative but yeah look it, it is one of those things that that for whatever set of reasons and we could probably have a whole show just to discuss that a lot of south africans feel very um uh, very powerfully about i like to uh introduce whatever interventions i might make on the subject by saying as the only south african who is not an expert on the middle east i'd like to make the following comment um because yeah uh uh, part of this probably comes down to 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 ethnic or religious identifications, um, you know, uh, misplaced in my view uh, uh, links between or you know associations between South Africa and the um, uh, between South Africa's history and that of the and and, and that of the Palestinians. It it does seem to me though that 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 for the DA this is a this is a uniquely difficult problem because. I think that at some level it's kind of accepted that uh, that that there's really no uh, uh, no way to win here, um, but there's this sort of uh, demand from you know particular hard cause and their constituencies to to take a position. No position you take is going to satisfy everyone, and trying to split the difference or uh, you know uh, adopt I think Morris called it a milk dose position uh, is going to is going to sort of irritate everyone. For me though. What I would say about the um, uh, about about Kishalia's position is that if you if, if if you wait through the very extensive documentation and letters that he's written, what comes out there is a sense is 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 this challenge to what he considers autocracy, democratic centralism. You know, obviously that's put in there for a reason. Uh, yeah. Um, the DA as a um, as a liberal party should it be restricting what pe what 
what its uh, uh, what its leaders can say uh, as private citizens is I mean and that's a question is is is, is that viable or not Morris what do you Morris think? yeah so firstly Morris what do you think on that question but secondly it's it's always interesting to me how when you sort of ask like voters or, or even politicians what their biggest issues are they'll never list foreign policy stuff as near the top of that list and yet in many countries in the world um foreign policy issues tend to i think be some of the most emotive and i think part of the reason for that is often uh, when there's you know when you especially when there's actually nothing necessarily practical to do they kind of become stand-ins for your larger worldview and sort of moral framework and all that kind of stuff mm. uh, and so they 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 take on a sort of intensity that I think if you were just looking at everything very coldly and, and sort of rationally doesn't seem that uh, obvious but uh, you see this as well in in the United States where people will 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 will, will never list foreign policy issues at the top of their list but then will sometimes get the most furious about a foreign policy issue um, regardless of what position they take on it. Uh, we make all this, Morris. Yeah, I think um, uh, the kind of policy things are often a shorthand to signal where you kind of stand with things. So, I mean, taking the Ukraine-Russia war, uh, you know, if you're somebody who uh, decided you on the side of uh, Russia, for example, you're either going to say you, uh, you know, against the, the NATO and the WEF and George Soros and that, or that uh, uh, you on the side of uh, ANC and the uh, kind of uh, non-Western foreign policy. And if you said you're on the side of Ukraine, then you're more on you know kind of uh, uh, the Atlantic uh, Atlanticism and you know the liberal world order and all that kind of thing. I think it's similar when you'd say if you're not an American, you say who's supporting in uh, the American election. It's kind of just shorthand to identify what kind of tribe you're in. And I think it's quite similar with uh, this Israel and Palestine issue. I mean, it's obviously a very emotive issue. Uh, you know, it's, um, I'm also with Terence. Uh, I try not to comment too much on this. I think both sides have uh, quite strong points. But, yeah, I mean, what happened on 7th October was obviously terrible. But I also feel uh, really, uh, you know, for people who are living in Gaza who, you know, don't support Hamas, I think what's happening to them is also awful. So it's all, yeah, it's, it's a mess all around. But uh, on the issue of foreign policy, I mean, it seems to be, as you said, it's a very emotive topic, but I don't know how many people's votes in South Africa are going to be turned on foreign policy. I don't know how many people now who are sitting in the dark and hut full of load shedding and, you know, there's sewage pouring down the streets uh, have this, and, you know, they decided already two or three years ago they're not going to vote ANC and they're going to, you know, maybe give the DA a go or, you know, one of the new parties or whatever. I don't know how many of these people are going to look at uh, South Africa supporting... Um, you know, coming out strongly on the side of Palestine and going for ICJ and all that, and then deciding to change their vote back to the ANC because of what's uh, what the South African government's done with regard to Israel and so on. So it's yeah, it's I don't know how much it's going to be. It's you know, it fills up newspaper columns and gets people very hot under the collar on social media and all that kind of thing. And also at the same time, we've got to remember that the real people who died on the seventh October and real people who are getting uh, killed in Gaza and having their homes destroyed. So, you know, it's not just headlines, it's uh, what's happening and what has happened in the Middle East. It's real people being affected. But just on the issue of Kachalia as well, I think he's also in a tricky position. He's the, you know, he was a representative of the DA. And if I think if you're a public representative, you pretty much got to go along with what the party line is. And, uh, you know, if he, 
uh, obviously he's allowed to have his own opinion and so on. And if the party decided that he, what you were saying was going against what the party said, then maybe they also did the right thing. But then at the same time, I have to say, give kudos to Gatralia for, you know, standing by his principles and resigning from his position and from his job. You know, he's, he's obviously, uh, for now, he's unemployed. So, and he decided to put his principles first, so also good for him. But I think it's one of those, neither party's really looking, he's not very, hasn't really covered themselves in glory in this whole uh, issue at the moment. Any no, I'd just like to... Yeah, I'd just like to, like to point out there was actually a, um, a, one of the ANC's very, very few Jewish uh, uh, sort of, uh, she wasn't a public rep, but she was like a publicly known supporter um, who was, uh, she quit over uh, over this saying that the ANC has shown no empathy for for uh, Jewish people and saying that she's got she's become tired of, you know, simply being identified by, well, you know, where do you stand on this? Um, no, very, very, uh, uh, very, very sad and upsetting. Um Look, uh, a guy a guy grew up in South Africa, but now lives is now a long term resident of the United States. Actually, I asked him what he thought about about America's position on Ukraine. What what ordinary Americans that he interacts with thinks? He said, "Look, most of them don't. Most of them can get very emotional about it, but this is as long as they don't see it affecting their lives. Where that's where you'll see position shifting when they real when you know this is a case of you pay more tax because you need to buy more hardware to ship to Ukraine." So yeah, then you'll start you you can start to see these sort of things these sort of things falling apart. All right, let's move on to our last topic, and this is the arrest of a man in Mpumalanga for having a large number of firearms stored at his house, 106 firearms, um, most of them were pistols, but I think there were 14 rifles and eight shotguns, um, also as uh, uh, 1,700 rounds of ammunition. The story doesn't entirely make clear exactly what the circumstances of this are. It does seem as though this guy was involved with a private security firm, I think a, a fairly small one. And then the implication I got from the story, although it is not said in the story, this is that uh, you know he was maybe like storing these weapons for his private security company or, or, or something like that. Um, some of them had expired licenses, uh, and all of them were stored. Uh, I believe the regulations say that you have to store a firearm in a safe. Uh, all of them were stored under his bed in suitcases, which is, you know, I'm not super big on like heavy firearms regulation, but uh, it doesn't seem like having a hundred guns under your bed is a great <laughs> idea. Um, oh. Terence, let me start again with you. The sort of larger issue here is the contentious firearms control act. You know, government passed this, and as far as I'm concerned, it has been a complete failure. It hasn't really done anything except make life very difficult for legal gun owners, whilst not really cutting into the enormous number of illegal firearms in the country. Uh, a number which no one has any sort of definitive idea of how big that number is, but it yeah. is quite large. Uh, as uh, yeah, the little there's a lot, there's a lot of them around, yeah. Well, uh, look, um, I, I I looked at some at some of the photographs of this guy's house, and you know, like the suitcase with pistols just spilling out of it. Um, you know, <laughs> there, there's been a concept in in South African law for a long, long time, which is unf unfit to possess a firearm. 
I can't help thinking that a guy who just has, you know, like some 102 gets like stuffed in the suitcases under his bed qualifies as fit to possess a firearm. Um, yeah, look, uh, uh, my my view on this, uh, you know, is, is, is that I do not, uh, I'm not in favor of the sort of American right to bear arms thing. I, but I do think that that for that private citizens have a, um, you know, have a, should should have a legal right they meet certain certain thresholds one of which i think is the is is the ability to safeguard the gun um i don't think that's that's unreasonable i think it's on your if it's on your possession it should be locked away um you know forget about uh, these getting into the hands of you know numbers gangs in the cape flats you know there's a question the question of a five-year-old you know thinking this is a nice toy and pulling the trigger that's a that that that's a thing this no um I, i'm i'm uh, I'm stunned, uh, and apparently he reckons that he lo- he can't can't account for twenty of them. I think I'm amazed he can actually account for the rest. <laughs> you know, if 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 there was like a walk-in safe and these were all sort of stacked on shelves or something, you you know, this just seems like carelessness of the highest order. Um, you know, yeah, that that that's exactly right. That is the sort of in your fridge, last... maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that does seem like a better place to store them. I mean, uh, the, the, when the police asked him, they, they had a list of firearms I think he was supposed to own or, or something like that. And, and he said that he could, as you mentioned, Terrence, could not account for 20 of them, which is, ooh, this is this this guy is giving <laughs> people, because it doesn't, it doesn't seem clear that he was, you know, going to sell these to, it doesn't look like he was going to sell these to criminals or anything like that, at least from the, the story here. Um, but still, I think a, a, not a good look for the for, for firearm owners. Um, Marius, what do you make of this? It's it's kind of an amusing story, but it, uh, it, it, I think it's it's just scratching the surface of the number of illegal firearms in the country. Uh, it's one of those funny stories that you probably only really get in South Africa. And uh, I'm also, uh, I mean, I'm not as much of a gun nut as the two of you, I don't think. Uh, but I think you should be allowed to have a firearm, but also I don't think you should be keeping a hundred of them uh, under your bed. So, but, yeah. I mean, not under your bed, but in your safe, <laughs> I wouldn't be, a, I wouldn't mind keeping a hundred firearms in my safe. <laughs> no, I don't know. There's not too much to say about this. properly thing. registered and safeguarded firearms would be okay. I don't know. Why does anybody need a hundred guns, though, to be honest? I mean, maybe ten or something, but like, you only got two hands, right? So, why do you need, uh, why do you need, need a car with, with four doors there, Boris? <laughs> What if you want somebody to that's so ridiculous? Anyway, I don't know. There's, I mean, I don't know how much you can really say more about this, but it's yeah, just one of those funny stories that I think you only get in this country, really. And it's, yeah, it's probably you know, pretty good Friday story, I suppose. So I see someone is asking why the police came and uh, looking under his bed. Apparently, someone tipped them off to this fact that he had a huge number of firearms. Presumably, someone, someone probably visited him and tripped over a case full of firearms and thought, <laughs> "Oh well, yeah, this is weird." It's just sort of tripped over it, and then the guns just sort of spilling out of the open case, and he was like, "Ooh." <laughs> uh, but oh. I'm sure that the, uh, also another detail of the story: the guy who was arrested here is 67 years old. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think this is the kind of guy who's about to, you know, charge through the, you know, through the door of the local discam and demand all the prescription medication. But it's just like, you know, please lock your guns up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyway, um, that is, I think, all the time we have for today. Uh, we hope that you found the show interesting. 
We will be back on Monday with the Daily Friends Show. Have a great weekend, everyone. Cheers.